book of Numbers is not one of our favorite books except just isolated portions of the book. I don't know why he asked me to do this. Nobody reads Numbers. I tell my students at the seminary, when, uh, when we've done this course, I hope maybe one day you might read through Numbers again, but whether you'll study it or not, I don't know. Uh, the book of Numbers is not one of our favorite places to turn. So why, what's it doing in the Bible? Why is it there? It's a, it's a book that's crucial in a lot of ways. It's crucial in the sense that uh, it is a transition book. We're moving from Mount Sinai to the, uh, to the uh, uh, ministry of, of Moses that he'll give just before they go into the land of Canaan. So, so from in Numbers we move, really it's a book of movement, it's a book of geography moving from Sinai to the land of Canaan. Um, if, the, if we look at Numbers, there is a structure to it, and the structure is largely geographical. You have on the screen something along the line of saying much the most important principle of the arrangement of the book of Numbers is its use of variation form. Uh, it is cast in large cycles in which three important eras of revelation at Sinai, Kadesh, and in the plains of Moab are separated by two bridge passages describing the uh, journeys from Sinai to Kadesh and from Kadesh to the plains of Moab. I know that's exciting to you, but it's about the best I can do at this point. Uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, anything that's exciting, I have to point out. So uh, uh, the third slide, if typology determines the overall structure of the book, we should also note that it also underlines the threefold grouping of the murmuring stories. Um, in chapters 11 and 12, 16 and 17, and the Balaam narrative in chapters 22 to 24, as well as the six-fold pattern of encampments in chapter 33. Chapter 33, if, if Numbers is not one of the more popular books of the Bible, chapter 33 is, is probably the least popular chapter in the book of Numbers. Uh, you, if you ever get to memorize Scripture, 33 will not be one of the chapters you'll want to memorize. But I want to redeem some of that for you as we go. And so in, in slide 4 uh, on the screen, you'll have an outline of the book. The outline is fairly simple. That is uh, a revelation that occurs at Sinai in chapters 1 to 10. Then the march from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea in chapters 10, 11 to 12, 16. At Kadesh, the events at Kadesh Barnea in 13 to 16, the wilderness wandering has an exclamation point because there's no scripture on it. <laughs> the reason for that is that the wilderness wandering occurs between chapter 19, the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. <laughs> so 40 years, or 38, occur uh, between the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. Then in chapters 20 and 21, you have the march from Kadesh Barnea to Moab, and finally um, the revelation in the plains of Moab. The next slide is a uh, is a map, and on the on the map you will see Kadesh Barnea. You see the big the big uh, oh, what kidney shaped land of Eden uh, with the hash marks through it. Just to the just to the left of Kadesh of of uh, Edom, you see Kadesh Barnea. That's going to be the dominant place that we'll spend our time in the book of Numbers. Uh, toward the end, we'll move around Edom and around Moab. You see Jericho up there next to Ammon, the large area with the white hash marks with Ammon in it, yes? All right. You see to the left of that Jericho, 
and you see the River Jordan that comes down from Galilee to to the Dead Sea, Israel will be encamped just to the left of Ammon there at the end of the book of Numbers. So this is generally where we are in the story as the book of Numbers unfolds. Next slide, uh, Numbers 1 to 10 is the first unit in the book of Numbers. And in that first unit, we get the completion of Israel's stay at Mount Sinai. They've been at Mount Sinai for about a year um, as this story opens in Numbers. And we're getting the last events at Mount Sinai, actually the preparation for the march from Sinai to to Kadesh Barnea. Uh, The problem is uh, we don't know where Sinai was. Nobody's sure where Mount Sinai was. There's a place that they show us. If you were to go to Israel and take a tour and, and say, we want to go to Mount Sinai, they would take you to the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula and they would show you this is Mount Sinai where, where uh, the uh, uh, monastery to St. Catherine is. There are several problems with that. You can't get the, tribe, the, the nation of Israel camped at the base of that Mount Sinai. Um, uh, and it's, it's both too far and too close. It's too close to Egypt and it's too far from Kadesh Barnea for it to really be Mount Sinai. So there are all kinds of guesses about where exactly Mount Sinai is. Sometimes the guess is that it's down in, in Saudi Arabia. Sometimes it's up closer to Kadesh Barnea. It's hard to know exactly where Mount Sinai is, but it's there someplace. Nobody knows for sure where. Uh, in any case, as we start the story, we're at Mount Sinai, and we're going to complete the stay there at Mount Sinai, prepare for the trip on north to Kadesh Barnea. So if you remember that map, I think in maps. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a visual thinker uh, typically, but maps stick in my mind easily. So I, if you remember that map we just looked at, maybe that will help to keep track of where we are as we go. So we're getting ready to move. The next slide, slide seven. These opening chapters of numbers are not arranged in strictly chronological order. This material is slightly out of chronological order because of the theme. The issue is that we're trying to get ready to move. We're, we've got to, to uh, uh, in order to move, we've got to do several things. One of the things that, that Moses is going to do in this section, the book is called Numbers because it's, it's very insightful. I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary. I know great and wise things most people don't know. Are you, are you with me here? One of the reasons that it's called Numbers is at the beginning of the book and at the ending of the book, you number the tribes of Israel. So you've got the census twice in the book. Thus it's called Numbers. <laughs> so I have a doctorate, and that's how I learned all that, see? <laughs> but this is the point. We're going to take a census of the nation. The goal of the census of the nation is so that when they go into the land of Canaan, they'll know which tribe needs the larger plot of land, which tribes need the smaller plots of land, and so on. So we're setting this up. They're going to go into the land and take it. At least that's the plan. They're going to go into the land and take it. And then once they get in there, they'll know which tribes need the larger parts of the land. So you're going to, you're going to get this census first. Then you're going to get gifts from the, the tribes for the, for the Levites and for the priests. But the, the gifts are given actually chronologically after the priests and the Levites are identified. But you get the gifts given first, and then the addition, the identification of the, of the uh, Levites and the priests. So all of this is set up thematically in chapters 1 to 10 to get us ready for the trip. 
Then slide eight. Uh, the law is given. Yahweh prepared Israel for battle, organizing the camp, purifying it, and supplying it with what was necessary for the march. So we're going to organize the camp. Then we're going to uh, 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 prepare for battle by purifying the camp and supplying what's necessary. Uh, uh, Slide 9 now. Chapters 1 and 2, the army is mustered. We've got to think of Israel as as an army on the march. The arrangement of the camp as it marches, uh, the the arrangement of the camp uh, as they settle for the night. Everything is arranged in the order of how you think about a, um, an army on the move. If you were to look at Egypt's army in its encampments, they would be encamped like Israel is, with the various units uh, set around a whole uh, a, a, a central uh, feature, and that central feature would be the Pharaoh's encampment, where the Pharaoh camps, all the, army, all the units of the army camp around it. In Israel's march the center will be the tabernacle of Israel. So God will take the place of the commander of the king who is in the center. Indeed, the camp, uh, the tent of the tabernacle is even set up like the Pharaoh's tent in his marches. So here the Lord is really setting this up to look like a king in the midst of his army and then the, the, uh, the various units of the army will set out uh, in various orders. So there are three tribes on the east, three on the north, three on the west, three on the south, and that's the way they will set out in march. Sometimes uh, scholars have, ve- have viewed the march as one tribe setting out, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, fifth, and sixth, then the, then the Pharaoh, or in this case the Lord, then the last six. Sometimes it's three tribes abreast. I have the New American Standard, actually the NIV Study Bible with me this morning, and there is actually a uh, chart in here showing the, pl- the order of march with three tribes abreast with the, the tabernacle of the Lord right in the middle. So they're moving out in army order as they will, as they will uh, march. The first question we have to ask, is it on the screen? Yes, how many people were there? The text says 600,000. Uh, and so, you know, what, what, why would you even ask the question, Jim? And the answer is that as I look at the Bible's numbers, the Bible's numbers are not always absolutely scientifically accurate. They are accurate for the purposes that the text uses them. And there are, there are people who are Bible-believing uh, uh, Christians who are saved by Jesus. They are inspired. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But they would say that these numbers are not, uh, are not to be taken as absolutely numerically accurate in the sense that we would use them. If I say to you, what time is it? If you have an analog watch, you will give it to me in five-minute increments. So I'm looking back here on the screen, and it says 822. So if you ask me, it's not an analog watch, it's a digital. Uh, if you ask me what time, I'll say, well, it's 822.25. Because it's uh, at that time, it was 25 seconds after the 22 minutes. Are you with me here? Which one is right? Is it 820 or is it 822? Well, every man believes his own watch is the first way. <laughs> also, you know the, uh, the definition of insecurity by the fact that a person who is insecure changes his watch every time he sees a different clock. 
<laughs> so, so which one is right? Well, it doesn't matter in, the, in one sense. If I'm baking bread, it might matter to the minute. But if I'm just asking, well, what time is it? Just for general reference, five minutes is okay. Yes? Does that make sense to you? 600,000 may not be uh, the exact number, but, uh, and, and therefore there are those who would challenge that. Uh, and there are some significant problems with saying 600,000 people in the army. Uh, the problem first would be just it's huge, it's enormous, and would be almost impossible for communication within the army in the ancient world. Uh, so uh, a, a large army might be 25,000. You've got 600,000 fighting men here. That's huge. So there are some who would raise the question. I just pointed out to you we're not going to make the argument one way or the other at this point except to say simply that the text of Numbers takes it seriously that it's actually 600,000 people. It's actually 603,000 some odd, uh, 255 or some such thing as that as the number is given in the text. And I'm satisfied with that personally. So you have this huge army on the march being arranged in the camp, being arranged for its, its march out of, out of uh, Sinai to uh, Kadesh Barnea. Chapters 3 and 4 now. Uh, the Levites are, are set up as the redemption for Israel's firstborn. As God saved Israel from Egypt, He killed the firstborn in Egypt. And when He did that, the firstborn became His. In order to, to redeem them, they either, the, the firstborn, since they now belong to God, would either have to become priests or they'll have to be killed. Or they'll have to be redeemed. And so God redeems them by taking the Levites from among the people of Israel as those who will specially serve him at the temple. Do you know, you probably do, but I just want to clarify the point, that not all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites. There is a, there's a clan within the tribe of Levi that is the priests. All the rest of the clans of Levi are then given as servants at the tabernacle to work, to do all the other work, carrying the furniture, taking care of the tent, uh, mending it, uh, doing any work that the priests need done. So the Levites are set apart among the Israelites to do that work. Uh, chapters 5 and 6, the holiness of the war camp is guaranteed. This is a war camp, and we don't think of war camps as being particularly holy places, but if God is dwelling in the midst, it must be a pure place. And so there are certain people who are to be expelled and excluded from the war camp since God dwells in the midst. That means, for example, anyone who has uh, uh, um, leprosy would be excluded from the camp. So later in chapter 12, uh, Miriam is going to contract leprosy and therefore is excluded from the camp until she is cleansed. And other people, anyone who's, who has touched a dead body is excluded from the war camp. And that's kind of odd because in war, of course, how would you function in war unless you could t touch dead bodies? But that means that when the men come back from battle, they must purify themselves before coming back into the camp. God is in the midst. Since God is in the midst, then the camp must be treated as a unique place. It is not like any other thing, any other camp or encampment in the history of the world. God is in the midst, and He must, as Deuteronomy will say, He must not see any indecent thing among you. And so everything unclean must be expelled from the camp, including uh, women who have uh, uh, 
uh, committed adultery. And you have a strange passage in this opening, uh, in these uh, chapters 5 and 6, especially looking at chapter 6, just a minute, or chapter 5 actually, the test of adultery, the waters of bitterness. Such a strange passage. Since we must cover the whole book of Numbers today, I haven't time to deal with that, but I just point this out to you that God has given this special ritual when a woman is is uh, suspected of adultery. And so that's uh, dealt with in chapter 5. Chapter 6, you have the law of the Nazarites. The Nazarites are significant to us because of two persons in the Scriptures. One is Samson, and the other is one who is, who is like Samson. Who is that? Do you know offhand? I, I, you probably wouldn't ever think of it if you hadn't studied it before, but it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Samson are described similarly to each other in the Scriptures. So Samson and John the Baptist are both Nazarites. They're, they're prohibited from touching anything that comes from the, grape, from the grapevine. Uh, not only wine, but even grape juice they can't use. They can't, they can't eat grapes. They can't eat raisins. Nothing that comes from the grapevine. And they're not to cut their hair. So you remember that from the story of Samson. The, the uh, Nazarites' ritual of uh, consecration is similar to the, to the uh, ritual of consecration for the high priest so that the common everyday Israelite has the possibility of, of achieving the same kind of holiness that a high priest has if he takes the Nazarite vow. And that's chapter 6. We're going to move on to uh, uh, chapter uh, 7 now. Chapters 7, 1 to 10, 10. And that will be slide uh, 14 for those who are taking care of this. Uh, chapters 7, 1 to 10, 10. You have a number of other things that occur in this passage there are the gifts for the tabernacle from the tribal leaders, and they're bringing all kinds of gifts, carts, uh, wagons to carry all the, all the utensils from the tabernacle, um, uh, various other things that will be needed for their work, the setting up of the lamp of His presence, of God's presence in the tabernacle, cleansing the Levites, celebrating the Passover, granting the glory over the tent to lead Israel and giving the war trumpets. God's glory actually comes and dwells there with the tabernacle so that when His glory rises from the tabernacle and begins to move, then Israel knows it's time to set out. And the war trumpets are significant because when God's glory rises from the tabernacle, then the trumpets are to be blown and Israel is to set out. And then when His, his glory settles someplace, they know it's the place to stop for the evening for campment. Then chapter 1011 to 1541. This, this is one of two most important passages in the book of Numbers. If you're going to think about Numbers sometime for your own special study, then chapter this section, 1011 to 1541, is absolutely crucial. And chapters 22 to 24 will be the two most important portions of the book of Numbers that you would want to come back to, assuming that you ever would. I hope you do someday. Uh, it is the Word of God, and all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and therefore profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and in righteousness, even Numbers, and even Numbers 33. We'll try to explain that shortly here. Chapters 1011 to 1541, though, are going to focus on Israel's failures. Unfortunately, Israel doesn't do very well in the Old Testament. They are redeemed by the Lord, but their redemption means... Not that they're not going to heaven. 
I'm sorry, not that they're not going to hell. Their redemption means that they are no longer slaves in Egypt. But these are unbelieving people. And essentially from the time that Moses went back to Egypt, Israel has told him, look, we really don't want want what you have to offer. What you have to offer is not good enough for us. We like what's happening here in Egypt. We like security. We like food on a regular basis. We like knowing where it's coming from and what it's going to be like, even if it entails remaining in slavery. And so every time things get difficult for Israel, subsequently from this point, from from Exodus uh, 12 on, every time things get difficult for Israel, they say, no, why didn't we stay in Egypt? And here in chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, they're going to be saying that very thing over and over and over again. So you have on the screen there, Yahweh barred the constantly rebellious generation of unbelievers from entering the land of Canaan, even bringing Canaan's judgment upon the defiant among them and then gave them the laws of ancillary sacrifices to remind them of their defiant sin, of their being rejected from the promise and of the future fulfillment of the promises to those who would remember the covenant. The section has two units in it. First, chapters 10 to 14, narrative, and then chapter 15, legislation. Chapter 11, they complain at Taborah in chapter 11, 1 to 3. Taborah in Hebrew means burning because God sent fire. On, when they grumbled, they, God sent fire on the edges of the camp to burn the people. Chapter uh, 11, though, focuses on verses 4 to 35 at Kivrot HaTavah. Ain't that exciting? I just can hardly hold myself in when I hear about Kivrot Hata'ava. But Kivrot means graves. Hata'ava means of, of desire. They desire meat. So God gives them meat. I have been told since I was a little kid. I grew up in church. When I was uh, three months old, I had a year attendance pin for Sunday school, if that communicates to you. Uh, I grew up in church, and I have been told that God never hears sinful prayers. But he heard this one. In fact, in the next screen, screen uh, 18 there, Psalm 106 refers to this very passage. The people wanted meat, and so God gave them meat. They quickly forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So He gave them their request. They prayed for meat, yes? God gave them meat, yes? But He sent a wasting disease among them. So does God grant sinful prayers? Yeah, sometimes. As a pastor of mine said back when I was in college, be careful what you pray for because you might get it. (laughs) He said it this way, be careful what you pray for because you might get it. And he said it that way because he had 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 a stroke. Um, And he said, I prayed that God would break me and make me into a man he could use. He said, be careful what you pray for. He, you might get it. <laughs> so, so the point is here, Israel, in unbelief, pray for food, for meat. God gave them meat, but it was a sinful request because they were convinced God couldn't give them meat in the wilderness. And he said, I'm not going to give it to you for a day or for two days or for a week. I'm going to give it to you for a month until it comes out of your nostrils. You're sick of it. They had meat to eat quail. Three foot tall quail. No, they weren't really. They were flying three feet off the ground. They could reach out and knock them in the head 
and, and pick them up off the ground. But uh, uh, Numbers 11, this crucial passage of Israel's unbelief. Chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses. Is, is Moses the only one through whom God has spoken as he also spoken through us? And God said, weren't you afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I speak to him face to face. And Deuteronomy will say that. No other prophet in the Old Testament did God speak face to face as he did with Moses. He spoke through dreams. He spoke through visions to others. But to Moses, he spoke like a man speaks to his friend face to face. Weren't you afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And thus he strikes Miriam with leprosy. It is interesting in Numbers 12 that God actually names Miriam first in the rebellion. So she may have been the leader in the rebellion against Moses. But she is restored. There's an interesting statement in Numbers 12, uh, verse um, uh, 3. Now Moses was a very humble man, more, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I have on the screen there the word oni. You see that, oni? It's kind of an odd word. It's Hebrew. Uh, the word could mean miserable. And if Moses wrote verse 3, then it would be a little strange in our minds to say he was a... Moses was a humble man. I am a humble man, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, the alternative would be that Moses was saying he was the most miserable man on the face of the earth, and one might grant that after chapters 11 and 12. Uh, chapter uh, uh, 13 now. Uh, you've got another, uh, another uh, screen here. We're at Kadesh Barnea. They're just to the left of center, Kadesh Barnea, and we're going to be moving around all the way down around down to the bottom of the of the map there on the screen and then moving all the way up to the north side of the of the dead sea as you see it there so here this is where they're headed but at Kadesh Barnea chapter 13 at Kadesh Barnea they have come to take the land i want to look at go back to the screen just a minute to the uh, the map just a minute to the previous yeah they're, they're right there at Kadesh Barnea. They're getting ready to go into the land. God's going to give them the land. He's going to tell them, I have promised this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now I'm going to fulfill it to you. And so they're ready to go in. Now, why is this so significant? Because, folks, if you were going to attack as an army the land of Canaan, that's the place to go in. Later in Joshua, they're going to go to the north side of the Dead Sea and cross the Jordan River. And it's in flood stage. I, I wish we had time to talk about the geography of the Jordan River, but this is no place you want to cross with an army. The easy way to get in is at Kadesh Barnea. So at, in chapter 13, he takes them to the right place. Any general would say, you want to attack from the south, go to Kadesh Barnea. There's a major highway that leads north. You see Beersheba there at the top of the screen? Major highway that goes from... Uh, Kadesh Barnea in the south to Beersheba in the north. And then as you move on north, Beersheba to Hebron to Bethlehem to Jerusalem to Shechem. And on north, it's, a, it's an easy route to attack the land. But Israel never believed that God's purpose for them was good. Every time we look at them in the, land of, uh, in the book of Numbers, they are convinced that God's purpose for them is destructive. Let's, let's move on now to, chapter, to uh, the next slide, 20. At Kadesh Barnea, the spies are sent into the land. As they go into the land, they find that it's a rich land, but it's inhabited land. <laughs> 
How can we take an inhabited land? And not only is it inhabited, but it has fortified cities. And not only is it, it, does it have fortified cities, but it has giants living in the land. We were grasshoppers in their eyes and in our own. How can we possibly take this land? You know the story, perhaps. Joshua and Caleb. This, I say this is the most important, along with chapters 20 to 24, 22 to 24. These are the two most important portions of the book of Numbers. In chapters uh, uh, 13 and 14, Je- Joshua and Caleb are the two men who say, no, if God is pleased with us, he will surely give us the land. We can do this. All we have to do is trust him. Crucial statement in chapter 14. Look there in chapter 14, verse 11. After the people are wailing because God's brought us here to die. Why did he bring us here to die? The, the conclusion they draw consistently is God's purpose for them is destructive. In 14.11, God responds, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not obey me? Yes? The way we read this normally is, well, they just were disobedient people. And that's true. That's exactly what they were. But that's not the reason God is upset with them. What is it that he says in 14.11? Yes, what's next? They don't trust him. Why are they disobedient? (laughs) Because they don't trust. Does that make sense to you? Their lack of faith means that they don't do what God has commanded them to do. And, and, and failing to do what God has called them to do brings judgment on them. God judges unbelieving people. Are you with me? So, the book of Numbers is going to be a book in which we will face God's judgment on an unbelieving people. Going on to Numbers 15, I have the promise of sacrifices in the land. God says, when, when you get into the land, He tells the people, look, okay, you don't want the land, then don't go, die in the wilderness. And they say, oh, well, gee, if we'd known that you were that serious about it, we'd have gone in. Let's go do it. And God says, don't go. And they say, no, 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 we'll, we'll do it now. We realize now you're serious. And so they die in the land, even suffering what the Canaanites are going to suffer later. But now God says, okay, you're going to die in the wilderness But when you get into the land, there are sacrifices I want you to make, and these sacrifices are the promise that they're going to get into the land. But they are also, go to the next slide, they are also the evidence of what Israel, this generation, is going to lose. They will will experience none of the blessing of God. Then moving on to chapter 16 to 19. In chapter 16 to 19, in response to defiled Israel's rebellion against his servants, Moses and Aaron, Yahweh further vindicated them in the eyes of Israel by allotting to them all of Israel's holy gifts and so on. (laughs) Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Do you know these names? Move your head in some direction. Okay. The rebellion of Korah is a crucial rebellion in the book of Numbers. It's referred to in the the book of Jude. Korah is is a Levite who has decided, just as Miriam decided, Moses couldn't possibly be the properly honored prophet in Israel, Korah, the Levite, concludes that Aaron cannot possibly be the properly honored priest in Israel. All the people are priests. You you sons of Aaron take too much on yourselves. And so Korah rebels against Aaron, and God says, okay, we'll see who is 
the properly honored priest. And here in chapters 16 to 19, this, this unfolds first in 16.1 to 17.13. You have the narrative of, of Korah's rebellion and then legislation that flows from it in chapters 18 and 19. The narrative, God shows first that Korah and Dathan and Abiram are not acceptable in that the, the earth opens up and swallows them whole, alive, and they go down to the grave alive because of the judgment of God. Then you have the Aaron's rod that budded passage. You know, you know about Aaron's rod that budded? They took 12 rods. Uh, they were almond rods. Now, that's A-L-M-O-N-D. That is not my name. I want you to understand that Nuts and I have no, no uh, common ground. So I am A-L-L-M-A-N. That's A-L-M-O-N-D. Right? So it's almond rod. And the rod that buds is the one whom God has chosen. Of the twelve tribes, the only rod that budded was the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi. And so God has chosen Levi. And therefore, the legislation you get in chapters 18 and 19 gives us both the prerogatives of the priests and their responsibilities. I say again, at the end of chapter 19, you have the wilderness wandering. That is, after the end of chapter 19, the wilderness wandering, and the beginning of chapter 20, you have uh, the end of the wilderness wandering. Look at chapter 20, verse 1, for just a moment. In chapter 20, verse 1, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. This is the first month of the last year. This is the 40th year of their wandering. So it's been 38 years since chapter 13. <laughs> All right? Thirty-eight years have elapsed, and we're going to start moving off the old generation. 600,000 fighting men have died. Perhaps some of the others of the women who, have, uh, who were in that generation would have died as well. Certainly many of them would. But the point is the 603,000 fighting men have died. A whole new generation has come up. We're going to move the old generation off so Miriam dies uh, in the uh, passage as well. Chapter 20, Aaron dies. But remarkably, in chapter 20, verses 2 to 13, you have rebellion at Meribah. <laughs> More rebellion. And this time, Moses gets caught up in the rebellion. Numbers 20, verse 12. Moses is, is banished from the land of Canaan. Why can't he go in? Because of unbelief. Look at 20:12. Look at 20:12. What does it say? Because you did not... Trust me to treat me as holy in the eyes of the people. Therefore, you will not go into the land. So Moses can't go in. The old generation can't go in because of unbelief. Moses can't go in because of unbelief. Then what's more important, folks, obedience or unbelief? I'm sorry, obedience or faith? Faith. Faith is the root from which obedience comes. If there is no faith, there is no acceptable obedience. Moses obeyed all the commandments of God in the law, but one time he was unbelieving and he is banished from the land. You get it? The crucial issue here is trust. Do you trust God or not? If you trust God, then you can obey Him. If you don't trust God, then you won't obey. And indeed, even if you obey, if you don't trust God, it doesn't matter, ultimately. Uh, chapter 21, they're preparing for the final march to the land. There is a a conquest of a town called Arad in the land. There's more rebellion in 21, 4 to 9 with the, with the bronze serpent, famous passage here. 
Probably the most important section of chapter 21 is verses 21 to 35. In 21 to 35, you have the uh, stories of the, of the conquest of the, of the uh, land of Og, Sihon and Og. Turn to the map that's next. Sihon uh, rules south where Gilead is on the screen. Uh, Sihon rules south of that word <laughs> up, uh, uh, around the north end of the Dead Sea. And then Og rules all the way north through what's called Bashan on the map up there. So they, con- they conquer this whole area. It's a p- kind of first fruit of the conquest where Israel learns how God is going to act. Now let's move on to chapters 22 to 24, the second most important portion of the book of Numbers, the story of Balaam the prophet. How much fun is this to talk about Balaam's talking donkey? I mean, that's one of the most... This is a funny passage, though it's the Word of God, and since it's the Word of God, we may not laugh when it is, re- when it is read. Yes? But when, when Balaam is beating his donkey, and the donkey looks at him and says, Am I not your donkey? <laughs> you ought to laugh. It is, the, it is one of the most ridiculous scenes in the Bible. God created laughter. He intends us to laugh, and we ought to laugh at that passage. The, the important thing, though, and I, I can only refer to this, uh, briefly, the important thing in this whole passage is that God is actually re- recapitulating some things that He has already done. If you'll turn to in the uh, screen, if you turn to uh, uh, slide 47, I'm sorry, 37. I can't read this tiny print. 37. Um, King Balak of Moab is very similar to, to Pharaoh in the way that he treats Israel. So there are a number of comparisons. I'm going to leave this, this print out here. In fact, they have a copy of it. And if you'd like a copy of these screens, uh, there are comparisons between what Pharaoh did to Israel and what Balak did. Turn to the next screen. Uh, 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 still more comparisons between Pharaoh and Balak. The next screen as well. Uh, still more comparisons. My point is to say... A very important uh, concept, and that very important concept, folks, this goes on, uh, go on clicking slowly through slide 41. Um, The very important concept is this. Brothers and sisters, you need to learn this. I learned it too late. Uh, You need to learn it earlier. I see some of you uh, are are as late as I am. But uh, the, um, the, the, the the basic message here is what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he is too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he is too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So what God had done for Israel with Pharaoh, God is now doing for Israel with Balak, but he's doing it in a different way. Does this make sense to you? And I see God recapitulating what He has done in the past because I need to know the past so that I know how to trust God for the future. What good is it to know the past if the past is completely irrelevant to what's happening in the present or the future? It's not completely irrelevant. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise. Let's move on past this material to... um, Oh, how far shall we go? I promised to talk to you about chapter 33, so let me, let me have you turn on to chapter 33. Uh, there are a number of things here. Uh, in fact, turn to slide 58. In chapter 33, 
I have a list. Click again. Oh, boy. <laughs> chapter 33. Go ahead. A list of places. And a whole chapter, too. I got Chapter 33 is a list of places. I don't know where they are. Most of the places, we don't know where they are. We have no idea where they were in the world. So what's the point? We'll go to the next slide. I have just the first 12, uh, is it 12? Uh, first 14 places on the, on the screen here. Uh, if you'll turn to the next slide, at, in the first place in each, in each case of these first two groups, I have miracles that occur at Ramesses and at the Wilderness of Sin. Next slide. Uh, at the fourth place in each of these two, I have victories for Israel that occur at Pihahiroth and, Re- and Rephidim. F- next slide, 62. At Elam and Kivroth Hata'avah, God provides for Israel. Uh, in the next slide, at Red Sea and Hatzerot, we have significant events with Miriam. Miriam sings a great song at Red Sea, and at Hatzerot, she dies. Are you with me here? So there are, there are these kinds of patterns that occur throughout these 33, uh, this, these, uh, um, I've forgotten how, how many places there are. Throughout all these places, there are these kinds of patterns that occur. And the crucial thing for us to realize, again, is what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So I, I need to know the patterns of God's dealings in the past. In order that I can begin to understand what God's doing now and so that I can trust Him about what He's going to do in the future, then my faith really does rest in the historical veracity of Scripture. Uh, uh, chapter, so chapter 33, uh, 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 65, slide 65, this list of stations expresses the typology of divine action more briefly, though more powerfully, in its sixfold repetition of events. By the listing of particular events at appropriate points in the cycle, the reader is reminded of the special importance of the crossing of the Red Sea and the law giving at Sinai. And while the unknown places, like those men remembered only for inclusion in a family tree, receive recognition as sites where God's eternal purposes were worked out. Now, in order to finish more or less on time, let's turn on to slide 68. Uh, if you wanted to go study numbers more in the future, there are some sources that you might go to. If you want something really brief, the book, uh, the, the last one there on the screen, uh, uh, William J. Dumbrell, The Faith of Israel, that's a wonderful book. It's a survey of the whole Old Testament. Each chapter is very brief, and you can read it in a, a matter of just really half an hour, 45 minutes. And it's one of the most insightful surveys of the Old Testament I've ever found. Uh, his treatment, uh, 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 William J. Dumbrell's treatment of each of the books, with, with one or two exceptions of each of the books, is just fantastic. So you'd hardly do better than that. If you want something a little more detailed, then there are two commentaries I would recommend. One is by R. Dennis Cole in the New American Commentary series, and the other is by uh, Gordon Wenham. Uh, almost anything Gordon Wenham writes is worth reading. Uh, and this is a very brief commentary on numbers, is the Tyndale Old Testament commentary, but it's in paperback and you can buy it at a relatively uh, low rate. Uh, so Wenham's commentary is just outstanding. But before we close, I want to give you two great messages, and this would be the last slide on the PowerPoint. 
what God has done in the past. What, what, what difference does it make that we have studied or talked about numbers? One of the things that we've seen in numbers is this point that we've made a couple of times. What God has, made, has done in the past is a model and a promise of what He will do in the future, though He's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. That's important so that we will know God's people are called to trust Him for the future because of what He has done in the past. And then second, the promises to Abraham remain in spite of Israel's uh, failure. Israel fails over and over and over and over and over again in numbers, but the promises to Abraham remain. Even after their great failure at Kadesh Barnea, God renews the promise that the nation will go into the land. The generation that died in the wilderness has no hope of entering into the land. But the generation that has come along since the death of their fathers are the ones who will know the blessing of God. Then, folks, God's promises remain even when His people don't know how to trust Him. But look, folks, we're given all this history so that we'll know that He is reliable.